Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, after Brexit and Merkel, what's the deal for Europe? On January the 31st, 2020, when the United Kingdom ended a half a century long membership of the European Union, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's short and snappy promise to get Brexit done had finally been delivered. This is not an end, but a beginning. This is the moment when the dawn breaks and the curtain goes up on a new act in our great national drama. But two years down the road, with a shortage of migrant workers causing severe disruption to fuel and food deliveries, unresolved trade issues provoking tensions on the island of Ireland, and now a fishing war breaking out in the English Channel, the arguments over Brexit impacts feel very much alive, certainly not done. My guest has been on the inside track of the withdrawal deal. Michel Barnier was the EU's Iron Will Chief Brexit negotiator, and he spent a long and at times acrimonious four years thrashing out a deal with a rotating cast of British counterparts. Mr Barnier embodied much that Brexiteers disliked about the EU, a smooth-talking French politician by background and Brussels insider who could prove intractable and detailed in his arguments. Now he's telling his side of the torrid story of those late nights at the negotiating table in a book entitled My Secret Brexit Diary. And he's reinventing himself, making a return to French domestic politics with a bid to push Emmanuel Macron out of the Elysee Palace in next year's presidential elections. He's arguing for greater sovereignty, not for Britain, but for France. So how does he see the future of European unity? Michel Barnier, welcome to The Economist Asks. Pleasure to be here. Your book is called My Secret Brexit Diary. Well, not so secret anymore because it chronicles four years from 2016 to 2020 that you spent in negotiations with the British government as the EU's chief negotiator. How would you portray those four years of talks? In any case, the Brexit is a kind of divorce. I have no personal experience about divorce, but I know, thanks to my friends, that divorce is always negative as a cost and provoke many, many consequences. Many more than expected or many more than explained to the British people or the European people. So, but the, the goal of this negotiation was to organize, if possible, the orderly divorce, an orderly withdrawal of the UK, and to put again certainty where this divorce creates so many uncertainties. 
at the end of the road, in my view, as a EU negotiator, and my job is finished now uh, since uh, the beginning of this year, Brexit remains a divorce and remain a lose-lose game. You think it was a lose-lose game. But I'm also interested in why you chose to write about it as a, a diary or a very experienced uh, politician, official, negotiator. It it does lift the curtain. Some people will think it's a bit of a betrayal of confidence so soon after these negotiations ended. What I tried to wrote in this book is my personal feeling, meeting uh, different personalities, my own analysis. I put also in this book some souvenir, if I may use this word, about my previous political life. And I thought there is no secret, even if this book is a personal note. And I think it was uh, my duty to, to explain to everybody these four years of negotiation. I think this, this, this work and this uh, récit is and will be interesting for everybody. You're not a great fan of the British government's negotiation and the way that it conducted it. You called Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, underprepared and frivolous. The former Brexit minister, now just turned former Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, almost messianic. My challenge to you is they believed something very strongly about Brexit. You, on behalf of the EU, believed something very strongly about Europe and the European Union. Did you feel that you were, in some ways, just talking two different languages and that you were, in a way, more likely to, to be critical because you simply didn't understand them? No, on the contrary, I tried and I think I succeed every day to understand them. And in any case, I always respect them, even if I wrote one portrait or, as you said, uh, saying exactly what, what was my feeling at that time. My line has been always to avoid any kind of emotion, passion, and, and to have a permanent respect. And to be calm also, huh? keep calm and negotiate was my line. Huh? Obviously, everybody on the European side regrets the Brexit. And uh, more than five years after the, the referendum, I still not understand the, the added value of the Brexit. But we have regretted this vote, but we have respected this vote. So my aim, my mission, my mandate along this negotiation was uh, to, to deliver an orderly Brexit, to defend the EU interest. It was the key point of my mandate. And I always had in my mind three concerns from the day one until the last day. Number one, to defend the EU interest, the integrity of the single market. No way to take the risk uh, to unravel or fragilize the single market. No cherry picking. The UK has left the EU, not the contrary. Uh, number two, the peace in Ireland, which remains very fragile, and everybody has to take care seriously about the peace in Ireland. And number three, my, my third concern has been and, and still is now, uh, as a French politician, to keep the best spirit as possible between the UK and EU, between UK and France, because what we have to do together to face so many challenges in the global world, security, uh, climate change, uh, financial stability, uh, migrations. Uh, the, 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 the challenge we have to face um, needs uh, a strong cooperation in any case in the medium and long term. Now, as you say, it's not the end of Britain's relationship 
with the EU, but many of the consequences, if you like, the backwash of the Brexit tidal wave still uh, sweeping through that relationship. We'll talk at the moment about one or two of them that are, are very obvious, both the situation in the English Channel with fishing rights and also some shortages in supply chains in, in Britain. How should this relationship evolve? We hear a lot of talk that it should be warmer, it should be better. But at the same time, I think it would be fair to say there is a testy relationship with France at the moment. Is there fault on both sides? We are speaking of the, the situation after the Brexit. We have negotiated uh, every sentence, every point. Uh, Boris Johnson was himself uh, the prime minister in, in, in England when we negotiated and finalised the first treaty, including uh, the protocol on Ireland. And he was the prime minister, he has been the prime minister when we negotiated line by line the second treaty, including the chapter on fishery. So what we can expect now is simply that the UK respects his signature. You see, this is a day, just to put it in context, when tensions are rising between Britain and France over those fishing rights post-Brexit. The UK has granted 12 licences to small French vessels. It claims that that is a reasonable interpretation based on previous fishing patterns. The French uh, maritime minister says French fishing must not be taken hostage for political ends. This is a fairly common in the history of the EU that there have been disagreements over fishing rights. Isn't it more sensible that instead of driving a kind of argument about trade wars, that both sides simply sit down and continue to hash it out and sort out the fish? What we expect, let me recall once again, is just for the UK in good faith to apply and to respect its signature and to resolve this point of the fishery issue for the fishermen of France, of uh, Belgium, Ireland, Netherlands, Denmark, and some others, just want their right to be recognized following the treaty signed and negotiated by Boris Johnson. It's interesting you keep saying it's all on Britain to do the work here. As far as the British government is concerned, it is compliant with the terms of the deal. And isn't that an ongoing issue uh, turn to Northern Ireland now in a, a second, that both sides in, interpret things differently. It's not as simple as saying, here's what was uh, agreed, you guys must come to the table. In the end, what is this? This is politics. Yes, but if there are politics feeling behind for the British government, it's once again, it's responsibility. I think it's not fair to take the, the fishermen in hostage during this negotiation for many other reasons. It's not the only point where we have adopt about the credibility of the UK uh, and uh, the respect uh, of its signature. We have very, very serious doubt about Ireland. And I just said, as a former negotiator, but also as a French politician involved in the presidential debate in my country, that the UK has to be very careful because what is at stake is the capacity to cooperate between UK and France, between UK and uh, the other country of the EU for the medium and the long term and to face together so many challenges. If the UK is willing to have a good cooperation with the EU, it has to be careful and just to respect its signature, nothing more. 
Let me ask you about the Northern Ireland Protocol. It was designed, of course, to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and it does it by keeping Northern Ireland in the EU's single market for goods. There is an attempt by the British government to renegotiate the so-called protocol to lessen the impact. There are trade tensions. The European Commission is saying no, there is no alternative. Again, other than saying, the Brits, well, you've just got to do what you said you would do. It is difficult to have a border effectively in the middle of the Irish Sea. It is causing tensions. What is the way through this? I never spoke about a border. We just spoke about checks and control. So once again, madam, this treaty has been negotiated by Boris Johnson, his team, very precisely, two years ago. There is no surprise. We have succeeded to find with Boris Johnson, not without him, not against him, with him. And just now we just ask him to respect his signature. We are ready. We are ready on the side of the commission. I'm no longer in charge, but the commission is ready to work, to discuss in the framework of the protocol to find operational technical solutions, for instance, for the, 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 the circulation of the medicines. But we need just for the UK to respect his signature once again. Can I just ask you something? Because Boris Johnson, it's almost like you've been trapped in an unhappy romance with him. Do you like Boris Johnson? It's not a problem for me to like or not Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is a, the Prime Minister of the UK. I know him quite well. We have always a cordial relations, but we, we are not at the same track. Huh? The, the only common point is that uh, he wanted to deliver uh, the Brexit. Me too. You, at least you had something in common. Let's look to your own ambitions. You are running as a, a candidate at the French elections in April 2022. You're running as a presidential candidate for the Republican. That's the centre-right party. Why did you throw your hat into the ring? What's wrong with President Macron? Why not just stick with him? We are not in the same party. Uh, it's not not uh, new, <laughs> and uh, we have we have good relations during all along the negotiation of the Brexit, obviously. But we have not the same vision of what is needed for France as far as the security for the people, the authority of the state, the, the migration policy, uh, uh, the influence of France. So, so we have m- many differences, and the, the, the debate with just beginning now uh, will be the, the occasion to express. These, these differences uh, to propose an alternative to, to the French people. But let me tell you, I'm here in London today uh, speaking about my book, and Brexit, and I don't want to merge everything and I don't want to to, to speak about French, French politics uh, uh, abroad. It's not a tradition and I want to respect this tradition. Well, well there is a, an obvious link here and that is some of your own proposals. If you were to become a French president, you, you've got a tough campaign, let, let's say, against some frontrunners. But if you did, one of your calls is for a referendum on migration policy. Another is a so-called constitutional shield so that France would develop its own non-EU immigration policy without the interference of the European courts. Sounds a little bit almost like the recipe of a lot of Brexiteers. No, no, you are wrong. I'm sorry to tell you, we, have need, we need to be precise on this point. Brexiters, as I said, spoke against the, the freedom of movement inside Europe. Uh, they, they spoke about uh, the withdrawal of their country from the EU. It, it has never been my, my feeling, my position. Uh, on the contrary, I, I'm not speaking. I want to protect 
the freedom movement in, in Europe. I'm just speaking of the, the best way to have a better, more efficient policy to to, to control the immigration coming from abroad, outside. And uh, when I look at the French debate, I think that my ideas of uh, moratoire to stop and to look at each and every procedures and to organize a referendum is now sharing by many, many people, including the left side. That that may be true because it's generally the case across Europe that, that there is a move to be more sceptical of immigration, but it is a different accent. No, I'm not speaking about to be sceptical about migration. I'm just speaking about controlling the immigration to, to, to give a, a better welcome to the people we, we, we agree to accept in, in our country and to limit the, the, the immigration, not to be sceptical. If you're, you're limiting the numbers, that is being less welcoming to some people, isn't it? No, no. Welcoming less people means that we, we are ready to to welcome those people who are accepted in a better way, with more, more dignity than today. You mentioned security as one of the things that drives your your own position and your candidacy. Let's talk about France and the transatlantic relationship. It's been shaken up a bit by the unveiling of AUKUS, the trilateral defence pact between Australia, the UK and the US. And a consequence was, of course, the cancellation of an important multi-billion dollar defence deal for submarines with France. That's caused great anger Uh, in France. we've, We've heard leading politicians denouncing it. What should happen next and what does it mean, do you think, for France and its transatlantic alliance, which has been strong in a great part of the NATO and broader defence compact. Your question since the beginning of this interview are really interesting. You, you, you mentioned the fact that uh, Boris Johnson does not respect his signature for fishery for Ireland and you ask me what can happen next. And now you, your second question is about uh, what happened a few weeks ago, a few days ago on this contract on submarines in Australia, which has been cancelled without any kind of prior discussion or consultation between allies. This behavior is not correct. And it is the reason why we have this common feeling in France about uh, uh, this behavior of the UK and the United States in particular. And the, the point for them is to know what happens next or now, because if they want to face a certain number of challenges in terms of external security, to have a good cooperation with Europe, uh, with the EU members, and in particular with France, uh, they have to to think about uh, what they have to do to rebuild the trust, to rebuild the confidence, which has been seriously fragilized by this behavior. I wonder how much the recent German election plays into your thoughts about the future of Europe. You knew Angela Merkel, of course, very well. She was around for, for, for so long. I think you were both environment ministers in the 1990s. Yes, correct, correct, in 94, 95. Are you one of those people who is still this week in slightly in tearful mode about the farewell to Angela Merkel? Or did you feel, I think you have indicated in, in some of, of uh, your, your statements as, as you've been setting out your case in the presidential race, that you think France bent too much towards Germany uh, in terms of the EU power balance in the last few years? I want to pay tribute to, to Angela Merkel. She has been a, one of the greatest, uh, more respected leaders in Europe uh, during all these years. And uh, I admire her, this, this woman. I know her quite well. 
And I sometimes recall the souvenir of one point of the negotiation very, very late in the night, uh, two or three years ago. We have a point of difficulty with the Brits about uh, Ireland. They, she gave me an advice with, which will remain very useful. She, she, she told me at that time, Michelle, uh, I'm a scientist, and she's a scientist. When I face a problem, I always take three steps back to look at the global picture. And uh, I think it could be good advice also for Boris Johnson, uh, speaking about Ireland or speaking about the fishery. And I think it's good advice for the future new French president to to look at the global picture. And if, if we look at the global picture, we have to, to be very careful about the European project, to continue to change what needs to be changed and to, to increase uh, some new policies for uh, industry, migration, less naivety in the, in the trade relations, control of the border, and uh, what, what we call the uh, European autonomy for many sectors. So, so to, to, to succeed in, on that line, we need a strong cooperation between um, Germany and France, this Franco-German relation has been always, in my view, a necessity, if I can add, more and more necessary and less and less sufficient. We need, we need also to open our diplomacy to many other countries, uh, and each and every European country, in my view, has an added value. But you did say, I think, that, that there needs to be a rebalancing of German influence in Europe. So do you think Germany got too much power within the EU under Angela Merkel and that needs to change? No, more, more precisely, I, I will act to increase the French influence. So someone gets less influence? I just tell you and answer your question that we have to increase, to rebuild a certain part, the French influence in the European framework. Your book is dedicated to your grandchildren, rather touchingly. Correct. Will the European Union, as we know it now, still exist when they're grown up? Or what do you think will have changed? I hope firmly and definitely that the European Union will will be there in next decades and uh, stronger and also uh, having drawn the lessons of this very, very uh, serious and historical event that the, the Brexit, uh, a great member state has left. Once again, it's, it's, uh, it's a lose-lose game, but uh, there are many lessons to draw. And it, it is the reason of the first chapter uh, of this book, uh, a warning. We have to take care to this warning of uh, the people in many regions of, of UK um, expressing a kind of uh, social anger, a popular feeling, which is not the same thing as the populism. So we have to take count to, to listen, to understand, and to answer. And all the answers are not in Brussels. A part of the answer are Brussels about uh, the border, the, the lack of um, industrial ambition, but uh, part of the answer are also in Paris or in Rome or in Berlin and also at the regional level. But we have to, to give the answer to the people. I gather you're enjoying being on book tour in, in Britain. And at least for a Frenchman, you've made one big concession, I think. You had an English breakfast today. Yes, because I love the, the English breakfast. <laughs> It is not the only reason why I admire this country. I respect the, the UK. I have a lot of admiration for, for the, this country, the, for its diplomacy, for ma- many of its leaders, in, in, in particular Winston Churchill, and also a great admiration for its culture. So uh, in any case, I will keep this admiration and this respect for the UK. Michel Barnier, thank you very much indeed. Many thanks to you. 
And we'd love to know what you think. Will the European Union be standing as it is in decades to come, as Mr Barnier believes? And what's the impact of the Auf Wiedersehen Mutti? Goodbye to Mother Merkel in Germany. Write to us at podcast@economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. I really do like to read your feedback, so send it on. Monsieur Barnier and I discussed the ripples of that AUKUS deal and The Economist has been looking into why the new theatre for great power competition is maritime. To read that article, do head over to our website. And while you're there, as I remind you every week, and I truly hope you do, become a subscriber today. We'd be very happy to welcome you. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.